Welcome to Langstaff Online. My name is Michael De Silva, and I am your host for episode 43. In this episode, I plan to take up an important topic for all Bible students. My message is entitled, Proof Text versus Context. If we take the Bible seriously, then we need to take the true meaning of the text seriously. I trust this episode will provide some helpful tools and tips for anyone that desires to understand the scriptures. Proof text versus context. What am I even talking about? This is a subject that should be very dear to any serious Bible student. You see, interpreting the scripture properly is critical because if we get it wrong, we begin to misunderstand and or misuse the words and message of God. This will result in very devastating consequences. Let me give you a few examples. I'm looking at a picture of a cartoon strip, a husband and a wife. It looks like they must be in the kitchen and the husband is exerting a lot of force trying to open up a jar. He then says to his wife, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And to that statement, his wife wisely replies, it's a pickle jar, Tom. Twist the lid, not scripture. Another example that was sent to me just a week ago from a friend is a picture of a man with a blue shirt. And this is what his shirt says. I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Sad, but so often it's true. A Bible scholar once said, a text without a context is just a pretext for what we want it to mean. You can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say, not only with one verse, but sadly by sometimes stringing a few verses together. Here is an example. Whatever you do, go and do quickly. And so Judas went and hung himself. So go and do likewise. I just put together three verses and developed a very dangerous, evil, and sinful doctrine, completely counter to the teachings of God's word, even though I quoted the Bible three times, two of which were the direct words of Jesus. Now we see the problem with proof texting in our general society, and we're usually very quick to identify it. Take, for example, the use of the media. A number of years ago, quite a few years ago now, uh, my grandfather put a big sign outside his um, lawn. He was very mad at the mayor of the city of Toronto. His sign was so aggressive, um, and that was my grandfather's style, that it caused the local Toronto news station to come out to his house, film him and his sign, and interview him to figure out why he was so upset about a community building project across the street. And I remember as family members, uh, grandchildren and my uncles and everyone in their home, like we knew the day and the time when the news report was going to happen. And we were all excited to hear what my grandfather was going to say. Now he was interviewed for like 30 minutes. They asked him a whole slew of questions. But when he finally made it to prime time, he was only famous for about 15 seconds. 30 minutes of an interview was restricted to a man in his broken English saying, to me, it's not important. To me, it's not important. Now, there was a lot more context to the story. What was not important? Uh, What was it that he was so upset about? 
Why was he making such a statement? None of those things were properly addressed in the media article or in the media presentation because my grandfather, to some degree, was taken out of context. Now, that's a very simple example. If you look at a story today and you read the uh, versions from CNN, Fox News, and NBC, and I would recommend you do that from time to time, it is amazing how the same story is not only just presented from three different lenses. I mean, the Word of God has many stories like that. Creation story, Genesis 1 and 2 are recapitulations of each other. You have uh, the books of the Kings and the books of Chronicles, recapitulations of each other, different lenses, different focus. The four Gospels, same idea, recapitulations of the life of Jesus through a different lens. So that's that would be fair. But oftentimes the three stories sound like three different stories from three different media sources. And what they're doing is that they are using often quotations and parts of the story out of its context. We don't like that at all. And we shouldn't accept that, especially as Bible students. We should never accept that amongst ourselves when it comes to studying with integrity the Word of God. So let's begin with some definitions. The definition of proof text. What is a proof text? A proof text is a passage of Scripture presented as proof for an entire theological doctrine, belief, or principle. It is often a passage that is taken in isolation and almost in every occasion it is out of context with the scriptures that surround that particular subject or verse. Many Christians grow up, sadly, in traditions that rely upon proof texting for understanding or presenting Bible teaching. Uh, You might be used to Bible studies that consist of dozens of texts pulled at random throughout the Bible study and throughout the Bible without any historical consideration regarding what those texts meant in the context to the time they were written. Who wrote it? Who were they writing it to? Because once we understand that and understand the message to them, then we can use it and bring it to our day to understand how we can use it as well. And so the result is we end up with teaching that doesn't often fit or present well with what the original biblical author was stating. And that is a very serious problem. What's the definition of context? It should be the very opposite of what we just talked about. It is important to understand that context and the best way to do it is by grasping the principle that we should always ask ourselves what the text meant to the people that were receiving it. By ripping every text out of context and applying it to our own day, uh, it will ultimately result in real consequences for a true understanding of Scripture. Three questions on context that I have found helpful in doing personal and group Bible studies, and I will share them with you. The first question I ask myself when I study a text Uh, Did I read four verses before and four verses after the section that I'm studying? Because more times than not, you can figure out the context very quickly if you're just willing to do a little more reading before and after. If that's not helpful, the second question, uh, I would move to that question. How is the word, the verse, or the topic, or the study that you're looking at How is it being used in the rest of that book that you're studying? So if it's a gospel or it's a book uh, in the Psalms 
or if it's in Deuteronomy, or if it's in Revelation, how is that word or topic used? For example, you'll read in Revelation about the seven spirits of God. Well, we know there that it's a tri- that He is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Seven in Revelation is the number of perfection, also seen in other many other parts of Scripture. And so it's 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 the idea of completion. We see it first and foremost in the creation story. Everything was complete in the seven day cycle. And so really that is an imagery to the Holy Spirit himself. It is not seven literal spirits. But when you study within context and you look at the whole book, then you begin to uh, understand if it's imagery or symbolism or whatever it might be, you begin to understand its context a little better. So that's a second way to do it if the reading four verses before and four verses after uh, doesn't help. Thirdly, how is the word or topic described in the rest of Scripture? And so you might have to do a bit of a study throughout Scripture and see how that word or topic or symbol is used in other places. And that oftentimes will help you create a more complete picture. However, when you study other books, remember there are different genres of study. And so we need to take into consideration the genre uh, of that study when we do a comparison. But sometimes those comparisons can help if the first two questions are unsatisfactory in developing what the context might be. I find those three questions uh, at a, at a simple uh, review is a very good help to a Bible student in understanding what the scriptures are actually saying. Now today, I just want to focus on three verses. Uh, I, want, I want to just go through these three verses and give you some examples of proof text versus context. And maybe it will stimulate you to start to develop these uh, strategies and these tools to your own personal Bible study. And perhaps if there is great interest, maybe we'll do a few more of these types of episodes in the future and consider other uh, texts of Scripture. So we're going to begin with a very uh, simple verse, maybe one that has not been used so harmfully, though I think taking God out of his context anytime is uh, unacceptable if we can avoid it. Psalm 118, verse 24. This is a well-known psalm. And this is what the verse says. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Reminds me of my childhood singing the old uh, children's hymn where this verse is used uh, for the lyrics. It's a beautiful hymn, or a beautiful hymn and and a beautiful verse. But I think this verse is oftentimes taken out of context. You know, is every Tuesday the day the Lord has made? I'll rejoice and be glad in it. Or every Sunday or every birthday or every Christmas. You know, interestingly enough, there is truth in this verse that every day is a day that has been blessed by the Lord and every day he has made. And we should be people who rejoice and we should be people who are glad and we should be people who are happy. But don't use this verse for that purpose. And oftentimes in our Christian life, we take a verse that we like, and though we can apply it maybe to a number of things, we can easily pull it out of its context and we lose the richness and the beauty and the glory that is behind these words that were written. Let me use my first example, the first question. Let's just read a few verses before and a few verses after verse 24. Verse 21 of chapter 118 of Psalm. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. 
The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, when you take it into context, you learn something so beautiful, so powerful, something that should be actually used on a Sunday morning when we come to worship the Lord Jesus Christ as a collective body, or when we worship the Lord day by day in our own home, uh, by ourselves, or when we go for a walk and we spend time alone with God. This verse and this section is filled with such power. The, the verses we read that preceded it were words that the Lord Jesus himself quoted. He was the stone that the builders had rejected. He had become the chief cornerstone. The, the verse 26 after 24, we read, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These were the words that were spoken when Jesus came into Jerusalem and the people cried, Hosanna, and they welcomed him in. These verses here represent what I have uh, enjoyed by a Bible scholar recently. He entitled it, The Christ Event. It's not just his birth. It's not just his life or his death or his burial. It's everything. And I, I like that definition, that term, the Christ event. It refers to his birth, his life, his miracles, his preaching, his suffering, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into glory when the Son of Man came riding on the clouds and entered into the presence of the Ancient of Days and received all authority and power and majesty and honor and worship forever. It's within this context, the Jesus, the Christ moment, and all that he did in his first advent. When you think of all of that imagery, and all of his suffering, and the price he pays, and, and the judgment that is uh, settled forever, and death that is vanquished and conquered, when we think of all that, then we should say, this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. That was the day. That was the time. And forever we will enjoy and rejoice and be glad in the one who has brought salvation, who has come to redeem his creation, who has come to restore all things and make it all new and to give us life, eternal life, and to give us the assurance that we will remain as true humans, body, soul, and spirit forever. That's the context of that verse. And when we focus on its context, then it allows us to express the glory and majesty that comes with it. Now, it was a simple one just to get us started. Let's move into uh, another verse now in the New Testament, one that I think, at least in my life, and I think in most church traditions, has probably been severely abused. And that is Matthew chapter 18 and verse 20. Matthew's the book of the kingdom and the king, very express, uh, ex expressed throughout the whole book. That is the lens, the recapitulation that Matthew is going to give, the perspective of Jesus's life. And in Matthew 18, Jesus uh, is, is speaking here about a brother or sister that sins against you and the protocols that have been put into place. And in verse number 20, we read these words, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Now I have heard this, word, this verse quoted in a million different contexts. I've heard it used in public realm 
a, a, a slew of times. I've seen it written on walls in buildings. I've seen it written on walls uh, outside of church gatherings. But what does this verse actually mean? Uh, I thought it might be best to just do a quote. So I'm going to quote a, a, a famous uh, Bible teacher. His name was uh, William McDonald. And I know a number who are probably going to listen to this uh, would know of him. I, I've used uh, a lot of uh, his work and his commentary of the Bible uh, to help me and guide me through things at times. Not that I agree with any uh, particular scholar that I study, but I thought his quote on this verse would be quite impactful so that you, you, you understand it's, it's not really coming from me. It's coming from any student of the Word of God who wants to take the Bible seriously. This is what William McDonald says for this verse. He says, this verse should be interpreted in light of its context. You see, this was a problem even in his day. It does not re refer primarily to the composition of a New Testament church in its simplest form, nor to a general prayer meeting, but to a meeting where the church seeks the reconciliation of two Christians separated by some sin. It may legitimately be applied to all meetings of believers where Christ is the center, but a specific type of meeting is in view here. Now, as I mentioned in the first example in Psalm 118, you can say God has made, the Lord has made every day. That's nice. So in, in essence, you can say the Lord is with us. That's a wonderful thing. But that is not in the context of Matthew 18 and 20. He goes on to write, William MacDonald, he says, to meet, quote unquote, in his name means by his authority in acknowledgement of all that he is and in obedience to his word. William MacDonald says, No group can claim to be the only ones who meet in his name. If that were so, his presence would be limited to a small segment of his body on earth. Wherever two or three are gathered in recognition of him as Lord and Savior, he is there in the midst. I think that's actually a very strong and powerful description of Matthew 18 and 20. No one is allowed to take Christ as their exclusive authority where everyone else outside of their local church or their tradition can't take him as their authority. That's completely impossible. And actually, when you think of what William MacDonald said, it actually leads into heresy because ultimately it presents God as a very small God instead of the God of the universal body of Christ. So it's important that we remain within the context of Scripture. So we've learned here that the whole section has to do with church discipline. And the second thing we learn that in his name is a representation of his authority. One thing I will add to William McDonald's comments relates to two or three, because I've heard a lot of young people over the years, I think older ones as well, probably a bit confused. What does two or three mean? Is Jesus with me? Am I under his authority when I'm alone? Yes, just one person. Holy Spirit is with me. So I'm not, I'm not alone. He, he is with me. So one works. What happens when I get together with my local church and there's about a hundred of us if we all show up? Is he there as well? Yes, of course he's there as well. So what did the Lord mean when he said two or three? Well, this is where actually going into those other questions, you begin to get a better picture. Two or three, going back to the Old Testament, 
to the subject of discipline and a judicial trial, which is what this whole section in Matthew 18 is all about. If you go to Deuteronomy, you will read for the first time about two or three witnesses. And those two or three witnesses are brought before in a trial. And two or three witnesses in a Jewish trial were required in order for there to be fairness and hopefully justice. And if those witnesses were lying and collaborating, then their penalty would be severe if they were caught in their sin. Now, when you study through the scripture, you will find many examples of these two or three witnesses. Think of Abraham, the three that came to visit him and the two that ultimately went to Sodom and Gomorrah. They went there as witnesses for judgment that was coming. If you trace through scripture, Naboth, there were witnesses that Jezebel brought forward. They were false witnesses, but multiple witnesses would have been required. In Jesus's trial, though it was done uh, illegally, they brought witnesses. They were false liars, but they were witnesses just the same. This is the imagery that we have throughout scripture. So when the Lord uses it here, he is using it to say that a person, a man or a woman, a brother or sister cannot be convicted because of the word of just one person. Two or three witnesses will be required, and he, in a very special sense, his authority will be present there. So if the witnesses are lying, I believe they'll be severely punished. If the person who's caught in sin is, is not repentive, they ultimately will be severely punished. Like the Ananias and Sapphira story. And there's many examples from my own assembly history of people that some of the believers tell me, even in recent days, of people they knew who were severely disciplined. Um, due to something that they had done and their inability or unwillingness to repent of it. So this is serious business. Matthew 18 and this verse 20 is a very, very serious chapter. But let me close with witnesses in Revelation. You get to Revelation and you read of two witnesses. And uh, the imagery there is actually quite uh, fascinating and quite powerful. And it ties into the theme of Matthew 18 and of Deuteronomy. You have it in the beginning of the Bible, you have it here in the middle, and you have it at the end. The description and revelation of the two witnesses, one, if you know your Bible stories well, one looks a lot like Moses, and the second one looks a lot like Elijah. And many have speculated who these witnesses are, but I'm just going to tell you this. There's two of them, like this verse, two or three. The witnesses are required when judgment comes, and you see the picture of it uh, being played in Revelation. And the first looked like Moses. Moses represented the law. The second looks like Elijah. Elijah represented the prophets. The Mount of Transfiguration, it should come as no surprise to any of us, the two witnesses that appeared with Jesus was Moses and Elijah. Why? Moses represents the law. He always did. And Elijah was always the representative of the prophets. And in the Hebrew scriptures, the law and the prophets form two of the three important uh, portions of the Hebrew scriptures. And when Jesus came, he said, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. So those witnesses throughout all of history, those witnesses are really seen in the character of Christ. They represent his justice and uh, they represent what is good and what is true. Now, men can corrupt that and they do corrupt it, as we know in scripture. But in the context of that, we understand now, two or three, this relates to dealing with sin. So what's so important about taking it out of context? Well, I think this. In all my church life, I have never seen a scenario by which church discipline was administered by following Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. I've seen different forms of discipline being administered, but I've never seen this. And if you go through this very carefully, you learn that Jesus' explanation of church discipline was for one primary focus, and Paul reinforces this in the letters as well. And the primary focus was this, that that brother or that sister might repent 
and that things might be restored again. That is the ultimate purpose of it. And you can see a buildup here. And ultimately it builds up to this truth that where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. It places such high authority. It, 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 it presents us in such awe and wonder to get it right, to be truthful, to be honorable, so that we might restore our brothers and sisters together. That, I believe, is the true context of Matthew chapter 20, uh, 18 and verse 20. Now, my third example, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20. Another very beautiful text of Scripture. Paul writes, he says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think this verse is taken out of context, and as a result of it being taken out of context, I think many Christians and many unbelievers have an incorrect view of the gospel and our hope. Let me explain. In the first century, it was widely taught that we needed to free ourselves from this world that our bodies were corrupt and decaying, and that the ultimate hope was for our souls to be liberated from these sinful bodies, to be liberated from this chaotic world, and for our souls to be brought to heaven where we could safely endure the peace and the tranquility of an endless eternity. Now, those words might sound good to you. I hope they don't sound like the gospel that you often hear, though I worry that in many cases that might be the case. You see, in first century that I just described for you, those words that I just used to describe that theological standpoint of the hope and the future was not from an apostle. It was from Plutarch, a Greek priest in Delphia. And it was a pagan idea that our bodies were corrupted and that ultimately our souls needed to be separated from the material world and brought to heaven where we would endure a peaceful eternity. I worry that our gospel preaching sounds a lot like that. But the gospel that we preach, that we should preach, the preaching that comes from the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and from his apostles is a message of how one day God, through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has already begun it. And yet it will still be consummated. It is, the, it is what is now and yet not yet fully seen. And it's this reality that God has come to restore his creation. The blessed hope I have is that one day my body, soul, and spirit will be restored in glory again. I'll be given a new body. It's all about resurrection. Baptism after you're saved is all about the, 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 the reminder that I'm dead to Christ and now I live in a new creation. I am already part of a new creation even though I still live with the effects of sin. It's not fully consummated yet. But that is the blessed hope. The blessed hope is not that I'm going to get sucked up like a straw and get out of this world as Plutarch was teaching in first century amongst the pagan priests. No, the great imagery and promise in the word of God in the New Testament is that Jesus is going to return and he's going to make everything right again. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. When you understand that big idea, then you understand the text that Paul is writing here. He's saying our citizenship is in heaven. It doesn't mean I got to get out of here. It means that this world has two kingdoms. It has an earthly kingdom that is filled with corruption and sin that we were rescued from. And it has a second kingdom 
Revelation is very clear. When John writes to the seven churches, he says that we are a kingdom of priests. And our kingdom is not on the defensive. Our kingdom is on the offense. We were told to go into the whole world and preach the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so our citizenship is in heaven. That means that's where our kingdom is. That's where our king is. That's where he currently uh, reigns uh, supreme. And he will return to reign in righteousness. But that is the vision that we have. And so that's why Paul says, I don't even have to read the other verses to get the context here. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior. He doesn't say, and from it, we wait to get out of here. We're waiting for a savior. If you wait for someone, it means they're coming back. And that person, he says, our savior is the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the great promise that we were given. Now, if you, if you study the context of the book, Paul is writing to the Philippian believers. They understand what Paul is saying. You see, for them, they would understand what citizenship was all about. Because Philippian believers and those in Philippi were citizens of Rome. Most of them had fought in the great uh, northern crusades uh, of the Roman Empire. And many of them as soldiers. That's why the Philippian jailer likely could be connected to that. He could have been a soldier in the Roman legions. They ended up receiving property and land. Rome could not fit all of its citizens, all the people that were given citizenship. So as a result of it, many cities across the Roman Empire were given the authority to be Roman. Remember, Rome is just a city. They were given the authority to be Roman citizens, just like the Apostle Paul was. And so with that authority, they were given all the privileges as though they lived in Rome, but they were never to forget wherever they lived that they belonged to the citizenship of that great city. And so as a result of it, they were not only to live with all of its privileges as Romans, but they had a responsibility. And that responsibility was to share those values and those truths with those living around them. And so Philippi had that responsibility of showing northern Greece what it meant to be a citizen of Rome. The Philippian believers understood this. So when Paul spoke to them about their citizenship being in heaven, they didn't think about, let's get out of here. What they thought was, we need to bring the values of heaven. The one who was meek and lowly. The one who showed love, grace, mercy, kindness. This Savior, he is not only Savior in that he has given us salvation, but he is our Lord. We have been called to the task of not building his church. He will build it himself. But he has called us for the purpose to serve in that church. He wants workers. He wants laborers to go into his vineyard to see the kingdom grow, that it might be done on earth what is done in heaven. That is the imagery of this verse. And when we understand it, it brings such a blessed hope because we realize Jesus leaving to to ascend into heaven and to bring the Holy Spirit was for the purpose of seeing this kingdom that was not from this world, that would not come as a result of physical fighting, but that it would come through the knowledge and the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ, both in words and in action, because we are citizens of heaven. And so I hope that this little study, looking at these three verses, that you will appreciate the difference between proof text and context. Proof text takes us in a wild and careless direction. It allows us to look at the Bible through our own lens and interpret it in a new way that is suitable maybe to our school or our system or our tradition or just our feeling and our culture today. 
When we put context into the study of God's word, we get to understand what God was actually saying to those people in that day so that we can apply the same truth in our day so that we could be just as relevant and just as effective in our service for the Lord as they were in theirs. And so I hope that this is a help. I go back to the three questions. As you go through the uh, text and you come across something that is difficult or you've heard of a variety of different interpretations, some texts, it has to do with schools of thought. That's a totally different subject for a different day. But not falling prey to a simple proof text, just taking a verse completely out of context. Remember the three questions a Bible student will ask themselves. Number one, did I read the four verses before and the four verses after? Because that might help me. Number two, how is this word or topic used in the rest of the book? Do I understand its context and the way the author wrote it to those who are receiving it? Number three, if I really have to, what does that word or topic mean when it's described in the rest of scripture? If you do that, I think it will help you along on your journey to getting the Bible as accurate as you possibly can. Remember, you don't want to take God out of context. You don't want to have a 30-minute message from him and pull 15 seconds out of context and go on your merry way uh, uh, without taking the truth to heart, knowing the truth, and being able to apply it. So become better Bible students should be the goal. I hope this uh, podcast encourages you to think that way. Let's study correctly, intently, and with purpose so that we don't take God out of context. I'll close with the quote I began with. A text without a context is just a pretext for what we want it to mean. I trust we will be diligent students of God's word that will take it seriously and that will take it to heart and that will do it for his glory.